Good evening. This evening's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 30. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thank you, Laura, for reading. Good to have you here with us, um, as Jay was saying, tonight at Chalmers. Uh, We're really glad you've made it. And if you are new, you've come on a great um, week, a great term, because you are going to hear the greatest sermon ever heard. Not mine, obviously, um, but Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, it is an extraordinary sermon. We're, we're going to give about 10 weeks to, to go through it slowly, and 10 weeks is not enough to plumb the depths. Uh, with tonight's passage, I was thinking I'd love to have this in three weeks, not two or one. Um, it's just amazing stuff, amazing stuff. It's a famous sermon, not just kind of in Christian circles. It hasn't just made it onto Christian calendars and posters. It's made it into popular culture. So here are some famous phrases. Judge not, lest you be judged. Whatever you wish that others would do, you also do to them. Build your house on the rock, not the sand. Love your enemies. Let your yes be yes. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Turn the other cheek, and so on and so on. All in this sermon, the greatest sermon ever heard. 
Let me pray for God's help as we come to listen to Jesus in it. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that your name would be honoured tonight, that your kingdom, your rule would extend tonight in this place, that your will would be done in our hearts as it is in heaven as we listen to these words of Jesus. We pray whatever else is going on in life, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the most famous sermon, the greatest sermon I think ever heard, uh, full of famous sayings. But as Jay said, we're going to find out tonight that it can also be painful, radically, painfully challenging Jesus' teaching reveals to us our hearts and our lives are not as squeaky clean as we would like to think, and certainly as we'd like others to think. That does upturn, I think, many people's view of Jesus. I think it's easy to take some of those famous sayings, turn the other cheek, judge not lest you be judged, love your enemies. It's easy to think Jesus is kind of just really relaxed, a kind of proto-hippie, basically kind of chill out. So just peace and love. No, no judgment or sin talk, please. However you live is cool with me. I just want the world to be a friendlier place. Imagine there's no hell below us. Above us only sky. It's easy if you try. Obviously, I'm exaggerating about that popular view of Jesus. I don't think it's miles from the truth. Baby Jesus, meek and mild. Baby Jesus, no crying he makes. Grown-up Jesus, he would never judge anyone. Didn't he welcome every kind of lifestyle? Didn't he teach that God is nothing like the, the kind of nasty, scary God of the Old Testament? That view is definitely out there. And it brings us to the question at the top of the outline, if you've um, got it in front of you. Um, the, the kind of key question tonight is this. Is God more ethically relaxed in the New Testament? Is God more ethically relaxed in the New Testament? Or to put it another way, uh, does God not care so much anymore about right and wrong? Has his standards softened since the Old Testament? Now, we might find ourselves wondering that question because there's no doubt Jesus did show radical grace towards people. Unlike the religious leaders of his day, actually, they only hung out with the kind of socially upstanding, the morally correct, the spiritually pure in, those eyes, in their eyes. And Jesus was quite the opposite. He would welcome and eat with people from any kind of background, any kind of lifestyle, although he never left them unchanged. We might also be asking this question because it, it might seem like Jesus' Jesus's followers today, the church have an easier time than the Old Testament people of God. After all, Israel had to eat certain foods and wear certain kinds of clothing. And Israel faced real punishments in space and time when they were breaking God's laws on their crops or on their politics. In Israel, some sin carried the death penalty, serious sin like murder or adultery. So then, is God more ethically relaxed now? Was he scary and angry back then in the Old Testament? And then Jesus turned up to show his other side, his kind and gracious side. Well, no and no. If you've been in Genesis, even this morning, 
We've been seeing that God is gracious and kind right from page one of the Bible. And actually, Jesus, especially here in Matthew 5, does not say, oh, you know all that Old Testament stuff? Well, you can ignore all that. Or you can take all that with a pinch of salt. Quite the opposite. Just look at verse 17, which brings us to our first point. We've got three tonight. Verse 17 gives us our first one. Jesus fulfills, not abolishes, the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Jesus is teaching in verses 17 to 20. Jesus fulfills, not abolishes, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we mentioned these verses last week, and I am really keen tonight to get to the practical examples, the case studies of anger and lust. So I'm going to do these more briefly than I'd like, more quickly than I'd like. If you have questions, we have a question com- time coming up um, soon after the evening service um, on the 8th of October. So please um, pop them in the box at the back or email me or ask me afterwards. We'd love to ask, answer questions on all sorts of things. But the headline, I think, is really helpful. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There it is. Pretty simple, isn't it? Black and white. Jesus didn't come to throw out the Bible so far, but to fulfill it. What does it mean to fulfill it? Well, it means that Jesus is the climax and the conclusion to which the rest of the Bible was always pointing. We've already seen that in Matthew, actually, if you've been around. There are loads of promises and prophecies and patterns that were set up in the Old Testament before Jesus as kind of trailers for the real thing when Jesus arrived. They were signposts, he's the reality. Or they were prototypes, as Jay said, he's the finished article. They're the initial sketch, he's the full color painting. Now, it's worth realizing in verse 17, when Jesus says law and prophets, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, not just the commandments of God. Um, That's a typical Jewish phrase to refer to the whole thing. So law is covering the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and prophets covers the rest, the history, the wisdom, the prophecies. All of that, says Jesus, is fulfilled in him, pointing to him, building to him. So therefore, verse 18, as long as the earth is still standing, every single word of the Old Testament has lasting significance. You can't scrap any of it. And that significance is pointing forward to Jesus and what he accomplishes as the end of God's story. It's a massive claim, but Matthew is giving us lots of evidence for it. We've already seen Jesus as this kind of greater prophet greater than Moses, a greater king, as Jay was saying, bringing this greater kingdom than David. Uh, He's a greater sacrifice than animals, we'll find out, and so on and so on. And I would, to be honest, love to spend another 20 minutes talking about that in much more detail. But I do think we need to get to verse 19, which brings us back to this key question, this key question of, is God more relaxed about right and wrong? Verse 19, just listen. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, the answer is pretty clear there, isn't it? 
No. No, God is not more relaxed about how we live. He's as holy as ever. In his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, well, it's supposed to be a place of purity, of righteousness. Which might, verse 19, leave us a little bit confused, because surely Jesus did relax some commandments, didn't he? Like, he did remove some of the Old Testament commandments in terms of us actually having to keep them. So later, he declares all food clean. Christians don't have to only eat kosher food like Jews did before Jesus died. And actually, didn't Jesus dying on the cross mean that sacrifices are no longer needed? All those priestly laws are no longer relevant. In one sense, Christians aren't under the law in that same sense of having to obey commandments exactly as Israel did. So how can Jesus say, well, I'm not removing even the smallest of the pen strokes? Well, the point is, he's not abolishing them, he's fulfilling them. Put it like this, the book of Leviticus, which is all about these uh, priests and uh, sacrifices needed to be clean before a holy God. Jesus doesn't say, well, you can rip Leviticus out of your Bibles. You won't be needing that. God's not really that holy, doesn't really need a sacrifice, doesn't really need a priest. And instead, he says, the fulfillment, it was pointing to me. Now you've got me, the fulfillment, the conclusion, what it was all pointing to. The same with food and clothing laws. That was what kept Israel as a distinct nation, different from the world around them. And when Jesus come along, he doesn't say, well, we can abolish all that. This idea of God's people being really different to the culture around them, standing out in the world, well, you can scrap all that. No, he says... I've come to fulfill that. Or in other words, I'm not going to build a a community that's only different in clothing. So socks and sandals. Christians don't have to wear them. If you do, you can. If you like them, you can, but you don't have to. That's not the uniform. We don't have a uniform because the distinctive thing for Christians is you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let people see your good works shine around you before others. That's the distinction. Christians are supposed to be salty, different, a different kind of community. Not least in the, ang- in the areas of anger and lust. Now we're going to see a number of examples Um, over chapter 5, 2 tonight, and and more if you come back in future weeks. Jesus is saying, I haven't come to get rid of commands, I've come to fulfill them. His standard, if you look at verse 48 of chapter 5, his standard is a high one. Just look at verse 48. This is the values of Jesus' kingdom. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing on earth. It's not just about a difference in dress or in food or in culture. No, it's about a difference right in here in our hearts. A real righteousness. A growing character that reflects our Father in heaven and our brother, Jesus Christ. When the Lord's Prayer prays, may your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. It's praying this, that we would grow in light of our Father's perfection, grow more like our God. That's the kind of standard. And in verse 20 of our passage, uh, he tells you what the standard isn't. <laughs> the standard of his, his day, the standard of the religious culture around him. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I said last week, that would be a real shock to Jesus' listeners. Scribes were experts in God's law. It was their business. Pharisees had made it their life to kind of map out a path, extra rules and regulations, to make sure you were always the right side of God's law. They had the approach of being able to say, tick, tick, tick. Yes, I've managed to keep all those. But Jesus' standards go way deeper than box ticking or externalities. Jesus says God's moral purity goes deeper than that. And so he comes not to abolish the Old Testament, but fulfill it. And so we've got these two big case studies tonight. In between those great bracketing statements, verse 20 and verse 48, there are a number of examples, worked out examples, where Jesus says, well, you've heard that Old Testament command, you have heard it said, and then says, but I say, and clarifies how that applies in his kingdom. And unlike the Pharisees' box-ticking approach, they really was able to say, by focusing on outward behavior, well, I've never killed anyone, tick. I've never actually got into bed with someone else I wasn't married to, tick. God should be pretty pleased with me, two out of two. Well done me. Unlike that approach... Jesus will pop the bubble of our moral complacency. Jesus can see right through our hearts. He knows all too well that things are not right in here. Not right at all. There are two sobering things about what Jesus is going to say tonight. One is that even internal sin... On the inside, even that is serious, can be seen by God. And then he's going to say how serious it is. And he's going to say even that is eternally deadly, but for his forgiveness and grace. And I have to say, as I've been preparing, I don't think there will be a single person in this room, including me, a single person who will be able to hear what Jesus teaches in verses 21 to 30 and leave the room saying, well, that's okay then. I'm doing fine in those areas. And so as we begin this kind of searching and examination of our hearts, I do want to say, as Jay was saying, there is real hope. So alongside this real conviction, Jesus offers real hope. Some of us in the room are already aware of real failure in these areas. Some of us are already longing to be clean, to be forgiven, to be changed, to be helped. Some of us sang, purify my heart, and we really meant it. And then there'll be others of us who haven't yet woken up to that reality. There is real forgiveness available. That's why Jesus came. 
That's what he offers. It's what's right at the heart of this amazing sermon, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. So there is hope. This is a sermon that brings us to our knees, not in despair, but in humility, asking for forgiveness for the past and help to change in the future. We have all stuffed up, and and God loves to answer that prayer for help. But we can't kid ourselves that God's standards have softened since Jesus arrived. He didn't get more relaxed. He's unchanging in his blazing holiness. So then, our first example. Let's hear Jesus say it. Uh, The first example is the command, do not murder. One of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, do not murder includes anger, contempt, and insult. Just look at uh, verse um, 21. Here's that, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Um, And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever, um, sorry, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus says the command do not murder is not just about homicide or killing people. It also includes anger, insult, and verbal abuse. I mean, it is an absolutely radical statement to make. Most people agree with verse 21. Yeah, okay, murder is wrong, and if you do actually murder someone, there should definitely be some consequences, some some serious consequences, liable to judgment. But just like I said earlier, Jesus turns up the stakes in two ways. Firstly, he redraws where the line of sin is, or shows us where it really is. Much further back from a physical attack, he draws it right through the heart. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Right through the mouth, uh, whoever says you fool will be liable to counsel, to the council. And then, most seriously of all, he says that actually the punishment is not just to do with law courts or the states, but God's eternal justice. Whoever says you fool, verse 22, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now Jesus here can't be talking about all anger. Can't be saying all anger is always wrong. Uh, Jesus himself was sometimes angry, righteously angry. Uh, He was indignant when he saw what had happened to the temple with all the cheating money changers in it. Or he was indignant at the Pharisees, actually, for their hypocritical religion. Jesus got angry. But this kind of anger is not like that. Those three examples, anger, insult, calling someone a fool, make it clear that this is talking about contempt for another human being looking down on and insulting them, whether to their face or behind their back. That, of course, is the anger that fits with murder. It's the annoyance and the contempt that says, you really are a waste of space. You are a total idiot. I wish you were dead. Striking that, isn't it? Saying of someone made in the image of God, the world would be better if you just didn't exist. My world would be better. And the stark reality is that I think every single one of us across our lives, perhaps even recently, 
have probably found that attitude in our hearts. Calling someone an idiot or a fool or a loser. It might have been to their face. It might have been behind their back in the the seeming privacy of our own heart. Could be flatmates getting deeply annoyed with each other. Could be spouses losing it with each other. Could be drivers losing it in the car. Could be teenagers losing it with their parents. Could be parents losing it with their children. Could be colleagues at work who annoy us or or get something they don't deserve or treat us badly and become targets of that secret anger in our hearts. Could be resentment at people who've hurt us where we're holding a grudge. Could be someone upset us and there was offense initially and that turned to anger next and then went to contempt at them. Could be anger at the opposite gender. Could be writing off all men or all women as a waste of space because some have let us down. Could be anger at family members for stuff that's happened in the past. Could be anger at the government or authorities for the decisions they're making, which we don't think are wise, but but turn into that kind of personal insult, that contempt at a person. Could be bitterness from unresolved tensions in friendship groups or from cruel words spoken. Could be anger at the church or other people in the church for not being how I'd like it to be. This stuff is all over the human heart. It's all through human speech. Maybe until tonight we've excused that kind of behavior. I think there's a couple of ways to do it. We, we might have kidded ourselves that if I'm just thinking it in my own head or my own heart, if I'm just speaking it behind closed doors and not to the person, well, maybe, maybe it's not so serious. Maybe God hasn't seen it. Unfortunately, it's more like, the, you know, in the pandemic, in Zoom calls, you could sometimes forget to mute your mic. Or you could, the thing I did, put your phone in your pocket without leaving the meeting, and everyone's still logged on and hearing everything you do next and say next. That is what it's like with God. His sound feed from our lives is never muted. Hearing every word of every hour, every thought, every day. We might kid ourselves, even if we know God's witnessed it all, we, we might kid ourselves, well, yeah, I'm guilty as charged. I've definitely called people idiots. I've definitely thought, I wish you, were, I wish you didn't exist. But surely that's a misdemeanor. Surely it's an understandable misdemeanor. I was tired. I was hungry. I was stressed. I was hurt. Or a million other factors. Or that's the kind of person I am. I I, I can be hot-headed. I can be impulsive. And I didn't really mean it. Or or once I've calmed down, I, I remember I don't mean it. Jesus is saying, actually, that did matter. It does matter. He's saying... There is in there this, this kind of murderous desire that, that's sitting at the root of that speech or that thought to call someone a fool, to think they're a waste of space, to, to effectively wish someone was dead. Jesus says, that's, that's really serious. I'll just read his words again. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
fact, Jesus thinks it's so kind of serious and important to deal with. In verse 23, he says, if, if you are in this situation where you've, you've lashed out at a person verbally in anger, he says, verse 23, it would be better to miss church and go and sort it out with them. Verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, I think because you've, you've got angry with your brother, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I think Jesus in, in, includes verses 23 to 25, 26, sorry, for a couple of reasons. I think it's here for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think there's, there's pastoral wisdom here. So if there has been a fallout, if we've said something we shouldn't have, something unkind or cruel or hostile with, with anger in our hearts, Jesus says the sooner you go and say sorry, the better. That is, relational hurt is best dealt with as soon as possible. Jesus is saying in verses 25 to 26, the last thing you want is that conflict to escalate, to become a legal matter. Far better to apologize straight away, make things right. That's the first reason. It's a practical one, I think. It does mean if tonight you're feeling convicted about something you've said or how you've acted angrily towards someone, uh, spoken unfairly, uh, then Jesus says, well, we'll go and apologize. Don't wait till another week or another day. Just, just go and apologize. Don't delay. Remember the start of the sermon. Blessed are the peacemakers in Jesus' kingdom. That's the first reason I think he says, verse 23, um, practically, let's, let's put these things right quickly. Keep short accounts. If we, as a church family, are going to remain united to be salt and light in the world around us, well, ideally, we'd never have an angry word in our church family. Never a harsh thought. The reality, though, is sometimes this will happen. And so the question is, will we have the, the willingness, the, the humility, the obedience to Jesus when we've stuffed up to confess our sin, ask for forgiveness, be reconciled, accept reconciliation if it's been offered, and not just avoid each other and simmer? But actually, I think there is another reason why Jesus gives this example in verse 23 of the person who's in the process of offering something to God and then has to put that down to go and sort out this broken relationship. I think he's pointing out that we can't paper over our ungodliness with service at church. As if, as long as we're giving our money or giving our time to church, God will turn a blind eye to the other issues. No, says Jesus, that's the Pharisee approach, the external works of righteousness. No, God looks at the heart. That's our first example. Do not murder includes anger, contempt, insult. And just to say again, like I said at the start, if that first example leaves you somewhat in despair, I know there will be some people um, who already hate that they struggle with anger, hate getting angry with people and struggle with that. You don't like it that you lose your temper with your children or your colleagues or your friends or your spouse or your flatmates. Well, Jesus has come to help us, to forgive us, and as Jay was saying, to change us from the inside out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin, 
Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Again, I'd love to say more on that, but it's time for our second example. And our last point, example two, do not commit adultery includes lustful looking. Do not commit adultery includes lustful looking. It's the same pattern again. So Jesus quoting a Ten Commandments. And again, the Pharisee might tick the box and say, no problem. I've never actually been in bed with someone else's spouse. I'm okay. In our culture, increasingly, I think people might think, well, hang on, what's even wrong with adultery? I mean, if the love has faded, if the spark has gone, if you both agree, if you're not being fulfilled, you should follow true love wherever it goes, even if it's not the person you're married to. Or what's the harm in fooling around a bit, especially if it's not like full-blown sex? Here's what Jesus says, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Do you see the same thing going on? It's far more radical, isn't it? Both where Jesus draws the line of sin, right through the heart, right through our eyes, and how serious he says it is. So much for Jesus, meek and mild. So much for, imagine there's no hell below, it's easy if you try. No, Jesus is saying, this is serious. Jesus here isn't literally advocating chopping bits of our bodies off. He's just using a stark image to to show how serious the issue is and how radical, costly action might be needed to fight in this area. Again, I want to say, this is an area where all of us will be struggling, will have records that aren't clean. Sometimes in life, the struggle is more intense than others, but I have spoken to Christians of all generations who say this area of lustful looking is a battle they face in the Christian life. Likewise, this is relevant to men and women. So Jesus gives the example of a man looking at a woman lustfully in verse 28. I think he's doing that because the Ten Commandments are phrased like that, um, coveting another man's wife. But Jesus knows that actually both men and women struggle in this area, and that temptations to lust can be heterosexual or homosexual. Likewise, he knows this is a battle for single people, and for married people, and for those who used to be married, and for those engaged. This applies to and challenges us all. Again, it's helpful to see what Jesus is saying is sinful, so we know what to get rid of. Verse 28, the key phrase is looking with lustful intent. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is not the same as just noticing someone is attractive or beautiful. That kind of first sight that strikes you is not what Jesus is talking about. No, he's talking about The second look, the look back with lust, the look dwelling on someone's body, the the look mentally undressing someone or imagining what being with them would be like. In other words, he is talking about coveting someone sexually whom we're not married to. That's the final one of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet. 
That is, do not desire to grab something or have something that God hasn't currently given you. The very first example in the Ten Commandments that's given is, do not cover your neighbor's wife. That is, Jesus is saying, if we're contemplating sleeping with someone to whom we're not married, if we're indulging that thought in our imagination, or if we're looking at people in that way, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. Again, we need to be honest and say, who among us, then, is not in serious trouble with God? Our records in this area are no better than our records with speech. And, of course, our society is not making this an easy battle to fight, is it? We we live in a culture that's absolutely saturated with sexual imagery. It's there in almost every advert. For the most mundane things, sex sells. So in every music act, pretty much, every celebrity photo, it's in mainstream media, movies, TV shows, streaming sites. Sex sells. Of course, it's, it's at the very core of the pornography industry, which is so massively destructive and easily accessible in this generation. Pornography degrades women and men, it, those who've been made in the image of God, it turns into just sexual objects. It disconnects God's amazing gift of sexuality from his design of a lifelong interpersonal marriage relationship. Disconnects it from that intimacy and instead puts it in this kind of spiral of sin and shame and actually ever less satisfying emptiness. Some of us know it's a problem, but some of us don't. So let me say some other things. It wreaks havoc on marriages. It can wreak havoc on how teenagers relate to one another. It can wreak havoc on how men and women see the opposite sex and make a struggle to build healthy friendships. And so Jesus says, let's take radical action to deal with this. For those of us who are really struggling and feeling a bit trapped, don't know what to do, where to turn next, please can I encourage you to speak with someone after this. It might be a friend or someone in your small group or one of us on the team. I know a number of people in our church family who regularly pray with other Christians about purity in this area. I know a number of people have installed blocking software, helpful blocking software like Covenant Eyes on their laptops. I know people who've got rid of their computers at home or who leave their phone always outside their bedroom in a kind of shared lounge space, or leave devices at work. I know some people avoid all films and shows they know will contain sex scenes. Others skip past them. Others mute them and walk out the room. It's not just pornography as well. Some have faced a particularly unhelpful relationship that was encouraging sexual sin, heard Jesus' call, and stopped it. Likewise, if there was a temptation in a, in a workplace or a sports club, a temptation to adultery, imagined or otherwise, with a particular person, it might actually be better to change hobby or, or change job rather than keep walking the cliff edge of temptation. Now, some of that may sound absolutely radical, inconvenient, extreme. But Jesus talks about chopping off hands and eyes. 
not literally, but, but to give us the sense that this might need radical action. I wish we had longer to talk this through. Please do, if you're battling in this area, please do speak with someone. I guess there'll be a few different people in the room. There'll be some, I guess, who, and maybe you're not yet a Christian and listening in, and you really want to say, no, Jesus, it can't be that serious. And I guess we need to ask ourselves, who knows better, me or Jesus, when it comes to God's standards? There'll be others, as Jay said, who are despairing, sorrowful, ashamed at our past, but struggling to turn to Jesus for help. Maybe we don't believe we could actually be washed clean. Something this serious. Jesus says, we can pray, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. And he loves to answer that prayer. There'll be some of us who want to be washed clean, but struggle to really want to change. That song we sang, my one desire is to be like you, holy. Or is it? And so just as I close, I want to close by saying that what Jesus is talking about here, this kind of behavior, both in the area of anger and in the area of lust, what he's promoting is actually beautiful, wonderful. He said, we're supposed to be light in a dark world, supposed to shine brighter, a different way to live. And the the sad truth of our world is that anger, murderous anger, and lust, kind of coveting, grabbing lust, is at the root of so many problems in our society. So the root of so many headlines at the moment. It's an awful thing that nations go to war against nations, that societies break down into civil wars, that families fall out and can't be reconciled, that friendships break down. And right at the root of it all lies this anger, the murderous contempt. And with lust, it's the same, isn't it? It, it, It's a horrible thing that we live in societies where to get away for years with home at night, or where high-profile celebrities seem to get away for years with using and abusing others. And for every notorious, famous example, there's countless that don't make the news. It all stems back to this, that lustful look, that intent of the human heart to covet someone I haven't committed to. In lifelong marriage. The point is, the community Jesus is proclaiming is a beautiful one. A place where there's light. A place where men and women are not sizing each other up, not objectifying each other. Where insults are not common and disdain is not normal. And where there is an issue, we, we don't leave it unresolved. Where brothers and sisters can dwell in real purity and real harmony, that is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus came not just to wash us clean, but to build that kind of community in church families across the world. The Sermon on the Mount is supposed to leave us not just praying, Father in heaven, forgive us our sins, but also praying, 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. To put it another way, Jesus wants us to pray, not just wash me clean, but change me from the inside out. And so can I encourage us, if we're struggling in either of these areas particularly, to pray that prayer. Be great to pray with someone who can support you and help you. But let me pray now as we close. Our Father in heaven, faced with Jesus' clear, good teaching, we admit that we have often not lived by your will as it's done in heaven. We acknowledge that we fall so far short of your righteousness in these two areas. So we do pray that you would forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And we pray that you'd change us you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in these areas. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.